Before the break, we had uh, a review, so to say, introduced a new section of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, where we are dealing with the death of some of the Israelites in the desert. We indicated that there are two subsections that capture Israel's experience during the Exodus. The first that is covered in verses 1 through 4 dealt with the shared blessings of Israel. And we indicated that the message was that you should enjoy uh, under the right spiritual leadership God's blessings through Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 5 through 13, the issue is God's judgment on many of the Israelites. So that the message is that enjoyment of God's blessings under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. That is the message of this section. We indicated that the word nevertheless that began verse 5 is a loaded word. And that it is a word that links the two sections, the first and the second subsection. Now the word nevertheless contrasts the love of God of the first section of his blessing and his justice in the present subsection. See, because we have distorted view of who God is, it also plays out in our distorted view of our fellow human beings. In other words, you think a human being should just act in a certain way all the time. Not another way, no. Here is God. God is a God of love, and that's all people talk about. Yes. But they ignore the Father. He's a God of righteousness, which means He's a, a just God. There is a thing we call His justice. You can't talk about His love and ignore His justice. That becomes having a distorted view of God. So this section is concerned with His justice in form of judgment on some of the Israelites. So the point that is really that uh, enjoyment of God's blessings will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. And so we gave an example. I mean, we have actually gave some examples. David was one example who, as I emphasized in the first part, is because of his blessings as a king of Israel, that he committed adultery and murder. I explained it clearly in the sense that there's no way he could have said, go procure that woman for me. Unless he had that power, that privilege of being the king of Israel. And I translated that to the fact that we are doing the same thing believers today. Because he used his blessing in the wrong way. And many of us are blessed, as I said. Some people, when they're supposed to be in church, they're in, the, you know, in golf court. They're supposed to be in one, one place, or some, or some are in the beaches. Because they can afford to go there when they're supposed to be in church. Now, if that is using God's blessing in a way that he never intended. And that's what they did. And so, he was an example God was pleased with David. Remember, the Bible tells us, God said, this is a man after my own heart. Yet, when he sinned through his affairs with Bathsheba, God lowered the hammer on him. He lost his children. Beginning with the child that is a result of the illicit uh, affairs. And then, here he comes, Ammon raves the half-sister, leading to Solomon, 
I mean, leading to, leading to Absalom killing Ammon later on. And of course, Absalom himself died. So there was a series of judgments on him because he used his blessing and misused it. He was a person who enjoyed God's blessings, but never, those blessings did never shield him from his uh, God's judgment. And so that's why uh, the message of this section is because of the statement of verse 5, where it says, God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered over the desert. So God was not pleased with most of the Israelites of Exodus generation of certain age. How do we know that? Well, first it is easy to think of God being pleased with us when we are enjoying his blessings than it is for us to think about his being displeased with us when things are not going well with us. Very rarely we do do, uh, think that way. Now, the, nonetheless, the first evidence, or the evidence of God's displeasure with majority of the uh, Israelites of the uh, Exodus generation is the death of many of them. And so that the, uh, we have the sentence of 1 Corinthians 10, 5, where it says, Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And we say that that statement summarize God's judgment on the Israelites in the desert for not believing God despite the many miracles they witnessed. The Lord then threatened them with judgment of death and carried it out so that those who were 20 years and above did not enter the promised land of uh, Canaan, where the Lord promised the promised land to them. And so we also indicated that just because they did not enter, Canaan did not mean that they lost their salvation. Those of them who were saved were still saved. I know that's the way some people say, well, here the Israelite, God delivered them. Then he killed them. Yes. That has to do with this world. Physical. It didn't alter their salvation. All of them who were saved, they were still saved. It's just they didn't enjoy that blessing of entering Canaan. And I say because some people say, okay, well, they really got uh, somewhere, somehow, they lost their salvation. God did something. And all that is because some of them quote Jude 5. So, that's what I quoted before break. And that's where we begin. Jude 5. Jude 5, that's a book of one chapter. Jude 5 means verse 5 of Jude. It reads, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. But let her destroy those who did not believe. So you say, oh yeah, do you see? You can get saved and don't believe, and you go to hell. And I'm saying, no, that's not what it is. See the clause, but let her destroy those who did not believe, refers to physical death of those Israelites that did not believe that the Lord will bring them to Canaan because of the bad report of the ten of the twelve spies Moses sent to spy on Canaan. Now as we have noted, God vowed that they would not enter Canaan. And they did not. Now this does not mean though that they lost their salvation. But that they did not experience the promised land. Now we, we have dealt really with uh, the problem of this clause in our study detailed study of the book of Jude. So, you may refer to that study in the church website and go listen to it in verse 5. You get all the details. However, I'm only making a point that is necessary to move on with what we're studying. Now, however, though, 
one factor that you should remember to convince you that not entering the land of Canaan does not mean that the individual who was uh, saved lost the person's salvation. Is that Moses did not enter Canaan also because of his failure. Which is one of the things that we study in the first part. That even Moses, as great as he was, when he failed, he didn't shield him. The blessings he enjoyed didn't shield him from God's judgment. Now Moses really is certainly in heaven. As implied uh, by the father, he appeared with the Lord Jesus during his transfiguration. Moses, although not really in heaven, until Christ took the Old Testament believers to heaven following his resurrection. Uh, but before that, when he appeared uh, during the transfiguration experience of the Lord Jesus Christ, he, at that point, must have been in the part of what is usually called uh, paradise, but really it is part of that place that housed all believers in the Old Testament time. They didn't go to heaven, but God left them in a, a, a place where we say part of Hades, where all the Old Testament believers were in. But when Christ resurrected, he emptied that part. So the head is now completely hell, more or less. But uh, he took uh, Moses at that point. But before that time, Moses was in that place of headings. And yet, so when he appeared, that's from where he appeared from. So my point is that although Moses did not enter Canaan, he was still eternally saved. Otherwise, he wouldn't be appearing. Now, this is also true of all the Israelites that were believers when they left Egypt, but later did not believe God's promise of getting them to Canaan. Hence, their death in the desert. So, in any event, it is the death of those Israelites, 20 years and up, that left Egypt, who did not believe God's promise, that is meant in the passage we are studying of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5 when it says, Their bodies were scattered over the desert, or literally, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now by the way, although we have stated that God killed the Israelites that died in the desert, but we should recognize that it is a second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, that did this. Now we say this because the Holy Spirit has already indicated that Jesus Christ was the one who traveled with the Israelites in the desert since the apostle had described Jesus Christ as a rock from which Israelites drank. Now the one who accompanied Israel in his travel, in the desert, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is also the one described as the angel of the Lord or angel of God. As we may gather from Exodus chapter 14 verse 19. Exodus chapter 14 verse 19. Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. It reads, Exodus chapter 14, verse 19 reads, Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front. And stood behind them. So this is the one. This angel of 
God is one that was accompanying Israel. And it has to refer to Jesus Christ. As we've already now seen from what Paul um, wrote that the rock was Christ. So it is probably the case so that when, when God kills people in large numbers at one time or over a period of time that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that is responsible as he is the angel of the Lord or the angel of God. Now we can see this fact not only with the death of the Israelite in the desert, but by the death of the 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 through 36. Second Kings chapter 19 chapter 19 verses 35 through 36 Second Kings Second Kings chapter 19 verse 35 reads, That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib King of Assyria broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So here the angel of the Lord that killed the Assyrian soldiers is the Lord Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation. Now in the, we've studied that in Genesis study to show that anytime you see that phrase in the Bible in the Old Testament that's why you see the angel of the Lord or angel of God. That's the way the angel of God. It's always a definite article to differentiate him from any other angel. So here, before the incarnation, he appeared severally. The Lord Jesus Christ did. And took on, you know, he came in from a human body. Until finally, through the virgin birth, he came into this planet using a human body. Nonetheless, the uh, angel of the Lord is the one who killed his 185,000. So anyway, our point though is that it is the Lord Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation that was responsible for the death of the Israelites in the desert because he was displeased with them. Now one of the things that you want to do as a believer is you should never want to be in a state where you displease the Lord. Because that's an awful state to be in. To be in a state where it displays the Lord. As we read in the first half, when he said, and you know what it means to be against, for God to be against you. So you don't want that to happen to you. You want to do everything to please the Lord. Not to displease Him. Because that's not a good way to ever live. Now there's no doubt that the last clause of First Corinthians 10 verse 5, their bodies were scattered over the desert. Summary, described in a summary fashion, the death of the Israelites in the desert, but there were certainly some specific examples of the Israelites dying in the desert that the Holy Spirit would have brought in the mind of the apostle as he thought of the Exodus generation of the Israelites who died in the desert. Now these specific examples should be known by any Jew or anyone that was acquainted with the narrative of the Exodus so that we're not really saying something that would not have been in the mind of the apostle that the Holy Spirit leads for us to deduce from the summary statement that we have here. 
Now there was that incident in which the Israelite complained of not eating any meat, but the manner that the Lord provided them, in effect, they were not satisfied with God's provision, which, by the way, is a perfect provision that He gave to them. That the food He gave them was meant to nourish their body for 40 years. They were bored, which is because, you know, as we, by, by grace of God, when we go back on Wednesday to study that section, we'll go into the detail and see how people get bored easily with God's provision because their life is not what it's supposed to be with the Lord. Anyway, so these people, they crave for other food than the one the Lord had provided them. As we read in Numbers chapter 11 verses 4 through 6. Numbers. And hold on to Numbers. Because uh, the next thing, six passages will still be in Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. Beginning at verse 4. Verses 4 through 6. It is, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in, in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks. Onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetites. We never see anything but this manner. Now you see, that's just we human. They think about the fish, they, whatever it is they ate, they forgot they were slaves being oppressed. They forgot that easily. So the Lord responded. By providing them quail to eat. But to show his displeasure, he killed an unspecified number of people that were rebels. As we read still in chapter 11 of Numbers, look at verse 33 through 34. Numbers. But while the meat was still between their feet, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. So verse 34 implies then that all of the Israelites who complained about the manna and were not satisfied with the Lord's provision died. That's the implication of verse 34. Another occasion the Lord killed some Israelites was when some of them under the leadership of Korah, rebelled against Moses' authority, as we read in Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It is Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Kohat, the son of Le- Levi, and certain Reubenites, Datan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Pelet, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them 
were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who have been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? It's always people who want to challenge authority, they want to buck it. And God said, I don't appreciate that. So the Lord will not tolerate the challenging of the authority of Israel's uh, spiritual leader, Moses. So he brought his judgment on all those involved in challenging Moses' authority by killing them in an unusual way of having them buried alive. According to Stidat Numbers, chapter 16, look at verses 28 through 33. Numbers 16, verses 28 through 33. It is, Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men died a natural death and experienced only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth, and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt as soon as he finished saying all this the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all chorus men and all their possessions, they went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Now, you, you know, you listen to all those news and things that are going on in Florida where the earth just keeps opening up and some houses will fall in. But this is one that is unique in the sense that. God did something where, yeah, the earth opened up, swallowed them, closed back. And that's something that God did. Because he does not tolerate disrespect for spiritual leadership. Now apparently, some of the Israelites did not get the lesson. The Lord wanted them to learn about being careful with spiritual leadership. So, they complain against Moses and Aaron because of the death of Korah and his supporters. As we read, look at still in that uh, number 16, look at verses 41 through 45. Verse 41 reads, The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You see, we I mean, that's, we are the most bull-headed animals on the planet, as they say. We humans, we just don't listen. We just don't pay attention. They're just seeing what happened. Look at what we're reading here. Look at what they say. You have killed the lost people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell first down. Great leaders, they do that kind of thing. Even though those under them may challenge them, they still have compassion for them. 
That's what Moses did here. He could say, okay, Lord, go ahead. Now he didn't do that. He was still concerned about them. And that's what great leaders do. Even though they are being uh, challenged, they still have their compassion and so forth. Anyway, it is interesting though that the Israelites said that Moses killed the rebels instead of the Lord. They blamed Moses instead of those rebels indicating they did not get the reason for the death of the rebels. This is not something that's unusual. Many, many times today they will blame somebody else instead of themselves. You know, they, it never occurred to these people, why did God do this? Because we're rebelling against Moses. No, they didn't think about that. And it's always fascinated me when I see maybe in the news some awful thing happen. And those involved, they blame somebody else. It's the other person's fault. And they never see what role they played. I said, how blind can we be with our human arrogance? Never look back and say, now what part did I play here? They didn't do that. And that's what many of us do. When somebody, you know, things go wrong, we, we never look at ourselves. We, you know, we push it aside. Blame the other person. If you didn't do that, if you didn't do this, if that would not happen. Really? Now what did you contribute? No, you didn't contribute to anything. Yes, I know. You're a perfect person. And that's how people do that. We consider ourselves perfect. Here they're blaming Moses. They haven't said, now, that's the fault of these 250 men with Korah. Why did they challenge his authority? They didn't say that. And that's one of those things that when you see, when people are in deception, they lose all sense of reasoning. Because that's what was going on here. Otherwise they would have said, well, maybe they wouldn't say it loudly. They said, well, they got what they, you know, had a comment for, for them, for challenging Moses. They didn't say that. They blamed Moses for what God did. Now so, after they blamed uh, him for the, the death of those people, consequently the Lord was still not pleased with complaining against Moses, the Israel's spiritual leader. So, to make his point one more, he killed 14,700 people. As we read still in Numbers, look at verses, chapter 16, verses 46 through 49. Numbers 16, verses 46 through 49. It is then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it, along with fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make an atonement for them. See, that's that love and concern that a leader has to have, even when his, his authority is being challenged. He said, Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people. But Aaron offered the incense and made an atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague. In addition, to those who had died because of Korah. Still, another occasion where they lost displeasure was evident in the death of some Israelites was when some men were enticed into idolatry and sexual immorality by the Moabite women. The result was God's plague that led to the death of 24,000 people 
the Israelites, as we read, still in Numbers, look at chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. It is then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses. And the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. See, apparently from what we can gather, Benham was unable to put a curse on Israel. So he realized there's one way to get Israel is to get them into idolatry. So when he advised the king and the Moabite women, they flashed. Whatever it is that they flash, and the men run towards that. And that got them into idolatry. And God was displeased. And He killed a lot of them. So that's what we're, uh, we're seeing in, this, in the context. So while that was still going on, some of them mourning, verse 7 says, When uh, Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saw this. He left the assembly, took a stair in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. You know, that's a, a man who brought a woman into the camp. A Moabite woman, for sure. He said he drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite, into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelite was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. Hence then, we get the idea that the clause of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, when it says, their bodies were scattered over the desert, while it refers primarily to the death of the Israelites in the desert for not believing the Lord, but the Holy Spirit would have brought to the mind of the apostle these specific examples that we have cited as he wrote God's displeasure with the Exodus generation of the Israelites. So our inclusion then of these specific examples will become clearer as we consider what the Holy Spirit wrote through Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 that we'll get to shortly. So anyway... As we indicated, Israelites enjoyed God's blessings under their spiritual leader Moses, but that did not shield them from his judgment. So this reminds us of the message we're expounding, which is again enjoyment of God's blessings under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. So the point remains then that the truth the Holy Spirit conveyed to us through Apostle Paul is that the death of the majority of the Israelites in the desert was because of God's displeasure with them. This then is the first reason for the message we stated. So this brings us to the, another reason for the message that we are considering as given in the passage of, of our study. Another reason for stating the message we have given is that the death in the desert of most of the Israelites that left Egypt is to dissuade believers from evil desires. To dissuade us from evil desires. Now this reason is the concern of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 6 through 10. Now this reason we have given is introduced with a statement in verse 6 that serves as an explanation for our benefit to what happened to the Israelites the Lord killed in the desert. Now we say that verse 6 is an explanation 
of what is stated in verse 5 regarding the Lord killing most of the Israelites of the Exodus generation in the desert because of the very first word of verse 6. That Look at the word now. That word now. The word now is translated from a Greek particle that is used to connect one clause to another. Either to express contrasts or simple continuation. Now, although it is often translated but in our English versions, when there is a perceived contrast between two clauses, but it has other meanings such as now, then, that is. When, of course, when it is used to link uh, segments of a narrative. It can also be used to indicate transition to something new. Now, in our verse, verse 6, it is used not merely to indicate a transition to something related to verse 5, but to provide an explanation of what was stated in verse 5. Now, remember that verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 describes God killing in the desert most of the Israelites of Exodus generation that left Egypt. So verse 6 then continues with that concept, but with the added explanation as to its significance on the church of Christ. Now this significance is really what we have stated, that is, that the date in the desert of most of the Israelites that left Israel, I mean that left Egypt, is to dissuade believers from evil desires. Now we asserted in verse 5 that they closed their bodies were scattered over the desert is indeed a summary statement. Not only to describe the overall judgment of the death, or, 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 of death on the Israelites who did not believe God's promise of getting them to the promised land. But it includes the specific cases of death of many Israelites because of God's judgment on them for one sin or the other. This interpretation is supported by the next phrase. Look at where we're starting 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Look at what it says. The next phrase says, these things. Now, these things. Now, the expression these things is translated from a Greek word that in, in general means this. To designate the nearer of two things. So it could be used to refer to something that has immediately preceded and so in that case maybe translate this one. It can also refer to what follows so that it may simply be, mean something like this. In our context, it is used to describe what preceded its usage in verse 6. Now, a problem arises though because of the Greek word used, the Greek actually used plural, implying that the apostle had in mind several things when he said these things. So the question is, what are these things? What are these things? He said, now these things, what are they? Now, in answering this question, we should remember that there are at least two general things the apostle had mentioned prior to this verse, verse 6. The first refers to the blessings of the Lord the Israelites enjoyed in desert under the leadership of Moses. The second is judgment by death of most of the Israelites of Exodus generation that left Egypt. So those are at least those general things. Now the first general thing though of blessings could not possibly be in the apostles' mind at this point because 
what follows in verse 6, following the phrase, these things, is judgment and not blessing. So he couldn't have been, he wouldn't have been thinking about that. Therefore, we are left to the second thing of judgment. However, the death of the Israelite in the desert may be viewed as a single event which does not agree with the use of the plural of a Greek word translated these things, these things. Now this being the case, it makes sense to recognize that the apostle had in mind the various incidents of the death of the Israelites in the desert. Dozen, the various examples of Israelites being judged by death that we have uh, uh, mentioned must have been in the mind of the apostle for him to write the phrase, now these things, these things. Did that as he may, we stated that another reason for the message of this passage that we are considering is that the deaths in the desert of most of the Israelites that left Egypt is to dissuade believers from evil desires. Now this reason is derived from the sentence of First Corinthians 10 verse 6 that we are studying. Look at what it says. These things are called as examples to, uh, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. That's what it is. Now the things that happened to those Israelites that died in the desert in different occasions are described as examples as in the NIV of what could happen in the future to those who follow their pattern. Now we say this because the word examples of the NIV is translated from a, a Greek word that may mean mark, mark. That is made uh, as a result of a blow or pressure as it is used to describe Thomas' desire to see the nail marks on Jesus' body to believe that Jesus has indeed resurrected as the other disciples told him as we read in John chapter 20 verse 25 John 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 20 verse 25 reads So the other disciples told him We have seen the Lord But he said to them Unless I see the nail mark That word mark Same Greek word translate examples Because the Greek was two parts Two parts Say nail mark in his hands And put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now the word may mean a kind or class or thing that suggests a model pattern. Hence, the Greek word may mean something like form, form, as it is used by Apostle Paul in describing the Christian teaching he gave to the Roman believers as we read in Romans chapter 6 verse 17. Romans chapter 6 verse 17. And uh, put your marker in Romans because I'll go to one passage and I'll come right back to Romans. Romans chapter 6 verse 17 reads, Be thanks be to God that although 
you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form. That's a Greek word, tupos. Yes, that's a form. The form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now the word may mean an archetype serving as a model. So the word may simply mean example in moral life as Apostle Paul used it to encourage Timothy to be a pattern or example to those he serves as their pastor as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12. 1 Timothy First Timothy chapter four verse twelve. It is don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life. In love, in faith, and in purity. Now the meaning, an archetype serving as uh, a model, may then be understood simply to mean types given by God as an indication of the future in form of persons or things as the word is used by Apostle Paul to indicate that Adam was in some regards similar to the one who was to come, that is Christ Jesus, as we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Romans Romans chapter 5, verse 14. He reads, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So here, pattern, a Greek word, tupos. Now, a Greek word, again, is translated pattern in the NIV. While other English versions, such as the New English translation, use the word word type or figure, as in the today's English version. Now, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the Greek word is used with the sense of archetype. Archetype. That is, an example that prefigures or foreshadows what is to come. Hence, those who died in the desert serve as a type of what could happen to believers who follow their failures. Now, they have many, many things I've told you in our studies here, that the Old Testament is where we look at the patterns of how God dealt with Israel to know what he's going to do with us in the church. You know, he doesn't change. So the way he treated them is exactly how he treats us. There's no, we don't have any detailed information in the New Testament about patterns. We have instructions. But the patterns will go to the Old Testament to see how God dealt with Israel. Because that's exactly how you deal with you and me. So, the issue is that we should uh, recognize that yes, what's happened to them is exactly what will happen to us if we follow their examples. Now again, I have to remind us, God is more like you and me. You know, we're too impatient. Now, if something happens, you want to do something right immediately. Man, God is not that way. He has a plan. And so you may say, well, I did it. Nothing happened to me, really. See, the good thing about it is we all forget easily. God doesn't. 
And so when he will bring judgment, it's not when you think. You may do something today, it will take about 20 years before it comes back to you. 20 years. Now, because you, you know, just because nothing happened to you, immediately say, well, nothing happened. No. God knows the right time. Of course, we go to that thing we call the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. When you sow, you will eventually reap it. How long? Depends on what it is. I use it, you know, you go and sow corn, within three months you get it. Now go plant an apple tree. You probably won't get anything the next ten years from it. Depending on what it is. So, just because, my point is, just because it didn't happen right away, don't think you've escaped. God knows the right time. And the problem with all of us is, when that right time comes, we'll forget what we went through, what we did. It never comes back to us. we forget it. But not so with God. Anyway, so that's what Moses, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul is conveying through all that Moses wrote, is that when we go through the same example, what happened to them will happen to us. Now the assertion that we should not then follow the example of those Israelites that died in the desert is given in the analogy of First Corinthians 10 verse 6 in the expression to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now the expression to keep us from setting our hearts is really translated from a Greek noun that is derived from a Greek verb that means to desire greatly or to lust. Now the word occurs only here in the Greek New Testament, but it is used in the Septuagint to describe those who crave for food that the Lord killed, as narrated in the passage we have cited before, especially Numbers 11 verse 34. Numbers chapter 11 verse 34. That's where our Greek word is used. Even though, like I said, it only appears once in the New Testament. But here it's used in the Septuagint of Numbers 11 verse 34. It says, therefore, the place was named Kibroth. However, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. Now this aside, the word is used in the New Testament for one who very much desires something, whether good or bad. So the Greek word means one who greatly desires. However, it is used in a negative Sense in our passage, so that the word refers to a lustful person, a lustful person. That is a person who wants or needs something in an inordinate, self-indulgent manner. Now we are sad that the word is used in a negative uh, sense primarily because of the phrase "evil things." The expression. Evil things is translated from a Greek adjective that refers to that which is socially or morally reprehensible. Hence means evil or bad. But it also refers to that which is harmful or injurious. So it is with a sense of that which is morally reprehensible that the word is used in our passage indicating that it is correct to describe the persons involved in the experience of the Israelites in the desert as lustful persons in a negative sense. Now the evil things in view will be elaborated beginning in verse 7. Now that notwithstanding, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul makes clear that we should not follow their conduct as implied in that clause, things as they did, evil things as they did. Hence, we are again reminded of the message of this section, which is, 
enjoyment of God's blessings under a great spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displace him. So, you have function as a believer. Your strive should be never to displease your Savior. Because if you do, you're going to be judged by him. Stay on the side of his blessing. In other words, there are two sides. Side of blessing, side of judgment. If you strive to live obediently, you're on the side of blessing. If you decide you want to be disobedient, you're on the side of judgment. So, as they say in Latin, ilia ieta est. Est. In other words, the die is cast. So you decide which way you want to be. You want to be on the side of blessing and then enjoy God's blessing. Or do you want to be on the side of his judgment and experience something that comes from him? It's up to you. As a believer, you have the choice now to make. You have the call. Call whichever way you want. And may God, may the Lord help you. Call it the right way. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone over the internet listening. So that you may be a person that if you die now, you go straight to hell. Hell is not a picnic place. It is so awful place that the Son of God will humiliate himself, really? Humble himself to take on a human form because he loves you. doesn't want you to spend eternity in a lake of fire, a place of horrible pain and suffering of the type that the human mind now cannot understand. Yet, God loves you. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who left all the glories of heaven because he wants to elevate you to sonship. He wants to elevate you to the family of God in Christ. How did he do it? He took on human form and he walked around on this planet, taught, preached, did a lot of miracles to vindicate the fact that he is the son of God to show that he is who he claimed to be. When he did all that, they rejected him. And they came to arrest him. To put him on the cross. As they came around with clubs, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. When God spoke, the word I am reflected God speaking. And they all hid the crown. But he gave them permission to arrest him. So that he willingly gave himself for you and for me. And they took him and made a mockery trial. And then handed him over to the Romans to torture him. See, the Romans, they are very good in torturing. They were. And so, they have whips with spikes on them. So when they hit somebody, they draw it. And that will call to refresh. And blood will come out. That's why Jesus was subjected in the praetorium. He never screamed. He never complained. He endured it all. And they marched him to Golgotha. And laid him on the cross. And tied him. Nailed him. And lifted that cross. And sank it to the ground. Causing a whole lot more pressure and pain upon him. He still didn't cry. He didn't complain. Until the last three hours on that cross. When my sins and your sins were being judged upon the Son of God. It was so unbearable. That he let out that cry. Eli, Eli. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not only believe that He is God, the Son of God, 
By believing in Him, you have the life. You have received eternal life. So if you trust that, if you believe in that, you will receive eternal life. On the other hand, if you say, "Well, I don't know," well, I'm telling you, my friend, you are the fringes of hell, and you need to escape it. Believe in Him, and you will escape God's eternal wrath. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will cause us to recognize the importance of placing you in order to be on the side of receiving your blessings instead of displacing you, exposing us to judgment. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.